Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm here with Mike Zarling, and we are offering you episode 29 of our Thirsty Podcast. Today we would like to take a look at the last two chapters of Romans in the New Testament, and then we'll jump back to the Old Testament and look at the three chapters of the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, We left off last time talking about the weak versus the strong Christians and uh, how important it is that uh, if you're, if you consider yourself a strong Christian, you actually need to uh, adapt what, uh, your way of practicing the faith uh, in a way that is considerate of and loving toward the weaker Christian. And uh, that's, that's what uh, Paul begins chapter 15 by saying. We have that obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not strong, uh, not to please ourselves, uh, but to please uh, the neighbor and uh, following Christ's example. So uh, that's as good a place to start as any, Pastor, uh, Pastor Zarling. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, he talks about in verse two, each of us should please his neighbor for the good purpose of building him up. But then like everything that should be in scripture in our lives, he points to Christ for even Christ did not please himself for as it is written, the insults of those who are insulting you fell on me. So just as Christ practiced self-denial in bearing with the insults of his enemies for our benefit. So God wants you and I as strong Christians to practice self-denial in bearing with the weakness of fellow Christians uh, for their benefit. And that's to build them up in faith. And I was thinking about that uh, with our soccer camp that we had this week. Uh, You know, that we had some of the older campers that I had to sit down and talk to, the 11, 12, and 13-year-olds, because... By Wednesday, they started acting like teenagers and pre-teenagers. You know, they thought they were too cool to do anything. And so I had to sit down and talk with them about how the younger kids are looking at them as examples. But, uh, you know, we had non-member children there. So I just talked to them. I didn't get mad. Just talked to them like this. But those that are the strong ones, those that are in our congregation, those I went and I talked to their dads personally because they are stronger Christians. And so I wanted them to act like it. Uh, so, so I think that's the key too. We expect more out of the stronger Christians and then we build up those who are weaker. It, it is an interesting thing. Anytime you hear about a dispute or argument uh, between the church, between members of the church, uh, believers who have disagreements about non-doctrinal matters, uh, you always have to, if you're listening to somebody uh, describe an argument like that to you, uh, it's kind of a, what do you call it, a, a check and balance situation where uh you'd have to tell the person, well, do you consider yourself a a stronger Christian? Then it sounds like the person that you're describing is a weaker Christian. And uh, they would likely say yes. And then you'd have to say, uh, well, then you are the one who actually needs to accommodate them. That doesn't mean do whatever they want. uh, But it does mean if you consider yourself the stronger Christian, then um, you need to adapt what you're doing uh, to their weakness. uh, And 
all of this, I think, is wrapped up best with verse four, that um, you need to align all of your practice and teaching with what was written in the past. Um, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us uh, for our instruction. Uh, what thoughts did you have about verse four? Yeah, and then it takes patient endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. Uh, sometimes people just don't get it. Uh, I've had people that have come into class, and I remember uh, one person, she was, oh, you mean it's really Christ's body and blood? It's not a symbol? I always thought it was uh, a, a representation. Well, this is someone that had been a member of this congregation from a little girl. And, but patient instruction. Uh, sometimes people just don't get the difficult teachings. Every year, I have one person uh, that asks about uh, predestination. I can count on it one question at least every year. And I've, so I've answered the question 17 times uh, you know, over the 17 years I've been here. But patient instruction, not get upset, but uh, that's how we learn. Repeating God's words over and over, and uh, it's, this is a temptation for me because I know that I'm, I'm always thinking, is there any way I can present something new? Is there any way that I can uh, surprise people or tell them something they've never heard before? And um, innovation is good, but uh, they aren't going to learn it unless there's repetition. Um, and, and, and with that... I was talking to some parents today that were brand new to our to our soccer camp and they had just looked online for soccer camp and they saw Water of Life soccer camp and it was down the road and they said it couldn't beat the price. It was $25 per camper and then there was a tuition break for every sibling. And there was a little guy, he had to be probably 11 or 12 years old and mom said, hey, do you want to go to this camp? And he said, well, I can learn about soccer and Jesus bonus. And, <laughs> and I think that's what we need to remember as adults is yeah, it's a bonus to get together for fellowship and things like that. But mainly we want to dig into the scriptures and the kids love that. And so if we took less time to actually study soccer and we spent more time singing and being in God's word this week, bonus. The goal of it really comes uh, from verse five. Uh, and may God, the source of patient endurance and encouragement, grant that you agree with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. Um, having the same mind is uh, is really the goal. That 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 that's why we practice saying all the words together. We we say the same words over and over. We are actually shooting for this goal of having the same mind, uh, being in agreement with one another. Um, I, I think a lot of times the church is wrongly defined as only being against everything or being opposed to uh, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but actually, uh, a verse like verse 5 shows you the, the goal of God's word is to bring about agreement. And I actually used these verses in my opening devotion for our district mission board meeting last week, where I talked about territorialism, that there are times when churches don't want to work with other churches. Schools of our Wisconsin Center may not want to work with other schools. The mission board uh, may want to come in and start a new mission and churches 
are very territorial. No, don't come in here because that's going to take members away. And so I asked the members of our mission board, how do we combat that territorialism? Because every one of them, I gave them the opportunity to share stories about territorialism of pastors or people saying, don't do this. Uh, And it came to this verse. What we have to do is remind our pastors, our teachers, our people that we are united. We have a unity in the Christian church that is unlike anything you have in the world. Even we call ourselves United States of America. We're not very united. Mm -mm. Uh, Watching, I'm watching the Olympics, especially soccer with my daughter. And it's neat to see the teams united and, and rally around each other, like Fiji winning the gold medal in rugby. Okay. Uh, my daughter, Belle, thought that was the weirdest game ever. But uh, you know, they shut down the entire island of Fiji to watch their team play in the Olympics. Uh, as united as they are, it's not anywhere close to being of one mind and one voice. Why do we do everything we do? Paul says that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That takes away all the territorialism where we think we're building up the church. We're building up the school. We're really glorifying ourselves, but no, we're glorifying Mm -hmm. Christ. So I would encourage uh, our listeners to this episode that uh, think for a moment about people with whom you you had disagreements or uh, have arguments, uh, maybe maybe people who aren't your favorite people. And I would even ask you to s- focus it or zero it down to uh, fellow believers who are in disagreement with you or not your favorite people. Um, because that, that verse about uh, scripture and the God of hope working agreement with us uh, is nothing new. Uh, Even long ago, when you look at uh, the rest of the verses following it, Paul uh, spends a lot of time quoting passages from the Old Testament about the Gentiles. And you can just imagine uh, talking about being territorial, uh, the the Jewish people that are converted to Christ and they believe in the true religion, uh, but uh, they don't really like it. They're they're these people that are of the same faith with them, but they're not their favorite kind of people. They're Gentiles. Uh, and and uh, Paul goes on to say, uh, these people that are different from you are also uh, one in faith with you. And that's a, that's a great miracle of the Holy Spirit. And I was going to bring that exact point up with verse 7. He says, for this reason, accept one another as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Because you can imagine the kind of problems that would arise in the early Christian church, like you said, of Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians. And yet, Paul says, though they're very different with different customs and ethnic qualities, they needed to be united. And think about that today in our Christian churches where you maybe have a an Anglo church, but now the community around them is changing to become more Latino or African American. And now they have to be united. And, you know, the Anglos have to understand that historically Latinos, it takes a long time for them to gather for worship, but then to especially get their offerings up to where an Anglo might. And then so the Anglos have to understand we're going to be supporting the uh, Latino side of the congregation for a long time. And then we bring in the African-Americans might have a different style of worship uh, or you know, 
and, and so forth. And so the angles have to be used to that kind of thing. But those all, anything that uh, differs like that, that's minor because the big thing is we're united in Christ. That's Paul's whole point. And any differences we might have today between uh, cultures and ethnicities and so forth, that's nowhere close to what it was like as a difference between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. I wanted to take a little bit of a detour and talk in verse 16. It, it kind of goes together with verse 15, but in verse 16, uh, Paul says that he does, he is doing the priestly work of proclaiming the gospel of God. And I think that's an important uh, ver- verse to notice uh, because um, when we talk about the universal priesthood or the priesthood of all believers, uh, there's a tendency, especially within Roman Catholicism, but also in some Lutheran circles to say that uh, all believers are priests. Yes, that is what the Bible teaches, but uh, really it's only the pastors who should be doing the proclaiming or teaching work. I would say, uh, or actually God's word says that uh, the pastors are the only ones who are supposed to be doing the preaching and teaching work in a public way. But when, uh, when the church asks them to through a divine call, but uh, this is one of those verses again, that uh, makes a really good case for the point that uh, all Christians are to be doing proclaiming of the gospel or teaching of God's word. uh, And and that, that is, that is also priestly work too. Um, One other term I wanted to draw your attention to, and especially I'm going to talk a lot about it in chapter 16, is the word obedience or uh, the opposite of it, disobedience in uh, verses 18 and 31. And uh, the reason I want to talk about, you know what, I'll, I'll save it for, I'll save it for chapter 16. Uh, Did you have anything else you wanted to cover in chapter 15? Just one little statement is, I I found it interesting in my study, and maybe I knew this before or just learned it, that it's at this point in his letter, as Paul is beginning to bring it to a close, uh, he's explaining why he wrote this letter. But what I hadn't realized was that he hadn't met these Christians. Hmm. So he's writing to Christians he doesn't know. And that's why the rest of chapter 15 is an explanation of why he's writing this letter. And then as we go into chapter 16, he's greeting the people he does know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And and for that reason, a lot of times people will call the book of Romans like Paul's uh, basic gospel pitch that this is if uh, if he's just coming upon people for the first time or, or meeting them, uh, this this is kind of the generic model that he follows the book of Romans uh, with sharing the gospel. Um, so uh, there's a term that's going to come up a lot in chapter 16, and it's also in chapter 15. That is the word obedience, and the thing about obedience is uh, well. Would, what imagery to, uh, comes to your mind when you hear the word obedience? What my kids have to do. To do, yeah, exactly. I maybe I was just thinking of the like dog training obedience school. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's it's here's a set of rules. Now you have to follow them. Or or you, you mentioned dog training. Uh, I had seen this clip for the Olympics and uh, of equestrian of them 
uh, dancing, the horses dancing mm. to music I mean, with the rider on there. And I was just thinking, how in the world do you train a horse to do that? But that's obedience. You're doing a lot of training. It, yeah, it, it's uh, to hear the steps. Now you follow these rules. And um, the, the Greek word for it in these uh, chapters, and it was actually also in chapter one, uh, obedience, it's not so much about following rules. It's a word that means uh, it has to do with listening, sort of like listen up or pay attention. And uh, what I always prefer to say instead of obedience for this Greek word is allegiance, that uh, you, you hear a call or you hear words and you say, I want to I put myself under that statement. I'm going to f- uh, fly that banner above me and uh, it, I'm going to keep on listening and keep on paying attention. Uh, and, and so in chapter 15, verse 31, when Paul talks about uh, those who are disobedient, it really is not focused so much on behavior or following rules. It's really focused more on listening and uh, allying or, or pledging allegiance to uh, a certain uh, set of words or a certain creed. Um, chapter 16, uh, I, I once heard a neat uh, summary of it, and it kind of z- zeroes in on verse 17. Um, verse 17, verses 17 and 18, uh, why are those familiar to you? We use those all the time when it comes to the doctrine of Christian fellowship. Who do we uh, affiliate with? Who do we associate with or not when it comes to our spiritual activity? And uh, the the neat outline that I heard once for this is uh, verses 1 through 16 of the chapter show you that there's also a positive side to fellowship. It's not just, well, we got to keep away from them and we got to not associate with them and let's draw lines and borders. Uh, there's a positive side to fellowship, and that's really verses 1 through 16. Yeah, and with those verses, I was going to say that sometimes we get the idea that Paul might be a one-man show. But then you read the first 16 verses about greeting this person or that person, and you see that Paul clearly worked alongside many other Christians, and he calls several people uh, fellow workers. Uh, and I've in my role as the district mission board chairman have seen uh, congregations that have become called worker centric. And what I mean by that is, you know, we call and pay the pastor and principal and teachers to do the work and we have them do the work and then whatever they don't do doesn't get done. Well, what does that do? Well, it limits your amount of uh, people to do the work and you're burning out your called workers. Uh, and I actually know a sad story of one of my relatives uh, that he was an organist and a teacher, and he said that none of his kids uh, stayed in the church because they saw how dad was treated as a teacher and so forth, and he, he was never home. And, you know, that's a sad story. And that's my encouragement to all of you as you read these 16 verses of greeting all of these other people is to be involved in the ministries of your church. Uh, What we're praying for here at Water of Life as a second pastor, uh, my job right now is just laying the groundwork so that when he gets here, we're ready to go. And it was really neat the last uh, two weeks to see God's people here stepping up. 
Uh, we had a Jesus Cares Ministry presentation last Sunday, and we had six people volunteer uh, to do that. In addition to what we have at the other campus, 11 people uh, signed up to do part of the prayer chain. Uh, one person signed up unasked to be part of English as Second Language when that second pastor comes. And then we had uh, 15 young people, uh, high schoolers, that came and helped with soccer camp this week. You know, we had, we had uh, one coach for every two kids, so, which is pretty fantastic. And, but that's how ministry grows, is by God's people being involved. And that's what you see in those first 16 verses. That's the positive side of fellowship like you're talking about. And th- what else do you notice in these verses uh, about the uh, early church's estimation of women? Yeah, the women were involved. They may not have been apostles, but they were definitely involved in the ministry. The, there was, there was, you don't really get a sense that Paul thought, uh, you know, women are second-class citizens and they're beneath me. Uh, he's saying, you know, this one was, was a mother to me. That, that's actually a, a term of reverence. Um, the, you know, there's Trophina and Trophosa, work, hard workers, uh, Mary, uh, yet another Mary, and uh, Phoebe and, and, and Priscilla or Prisca. Um, so let's dive into verses 17 and 18. Um, what does it mean uh, in your mind when uh, it says, keep away? How, uh, what's a good practical uh, way to, or a good way to, when it says keep away from the people who uh, cause divisions and offenses contrary to teaching, um, how far should you take that and how far should you not take that? Yeah, the way I take that is, you know, I was just talking to some of my students that are going away to college in the next two weeks, and I'm going to be setting them up with Wells Campus Ministries, you know, down in Florida, Whitewater, and so forth, and using that verse to keep away from the the non-denominational type ministries they might have in those campuses, and now join together more closely with the first 16 verses with those you're in, united with. So uh, not saying that, you know, those people are going to hell or anything like that, but there are false doctrines and those false doctrines in those churches and church bodies cause divisions. Yeah. So I guess the way I was presented is it, keep away does not mean we have to be the Amish or we have to uh, live in a monastery. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean that we are socially you know, you, you can't interact socially with uh, people of different denominations. Um, it, it just means when it comes to things that are unquestionably spiritual activity, let's not have any mixing or uh, confusion about about what they believe and about what we believe. Um, here's uh, let me yep. throw another curveball at you. Uh, You know, I really despise baseball, just so you know. Okay, uh, I will uh, try to bend it like Beckham. Oh, there you go. I love it. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Another argument that I've heard is when it talks about uh, the the false teachers who are uh, serving their own appetites or their own bellies uh, and and causing divisions and offenses contrary to what you've learned... um, that sounds to some people like maybe we just need to watch out for and keep away from the teachers of the. So as long as there's, you know, the guy standing up on the stage, uh, the televangelist himself, uh, 
okay, I'm not going to pray with him or sing hymns with him. But when it comes to people that are naively following him, uh, can I still not, you know, interact spiritually with them? Yeah. And there I think of, because I'm always thinking of analogies and stories. I think of two young ladies or high schoolers down in Kentucky and they came to us uh, because they had some vague Lutheranism in their past, but they had been going in Radcliffe, Kentucky to, uh, with some of their friends, were going to a church with their youth minister. You know, they're probably doing fun stuff and so forth. But then the youth minister ta- started talking about those that were baptized as infants, they need to be baptized again because it didn't count. Well, those girls, they're, they're teenagers and they're coming to church and they're crying because they felt that their baptism wasn't worth it. Now, what you're talking about is they're just going with their fellow Christian friends. They think they're going to have fun, but all it takes is that false teaching, whether it's another uh, classmate, a friend, a youth minister that brings up some false teaching and all it can get them to question their, their salvation. Um. I, I had the thought uh, at the very end of verse 18 that, um, you know, if I would ask you, uh, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea for a Christian to be suspicious? Uh, yeah. What what does it sound like? You're, if you weren't looking at these verses, what answer would you give? Yeah, you would say that, oh, Christians should be trustworthy and, mm. uh, you know, and trusting, right? And, and yet Paul says uh, that, they, the false teachers seduce the hearts of the unsuspecting. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there, it's not good to be paranoid, but uh, you could make a case that uh, this tells us it's okay. And in fact, it's a healthy thing to be suspicious of uh, anyone claiming to talk in the name of Jesus. And that's where, you know, when some of our uh, Lutherans are going away and they're visiting other churches on vacation or uh, they move somewhere where there isn't a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran church. And they ask me, well, what about this church or that church? Is it close to, uh, to the wells? And I said, well, you can go there, but understand that they're going to be teaching false teachings. And some of our members may know God's word well enough to be able to, you know, like you said, be suspicious and, and, uh, stay away from that, but others are going to get sucked into it. Uh, that's why I typically do not listen to anyone else that's not a Wisconsin Synod or Missouri Synod preacher, I, because I'm always going to be listening for their false teachings, and I'm not going to gain anything uh, from it because I'm always being suspicious. So I'd rather you know, listen to your sermons uh, and other Wells sermons because I know what those pastors teach, it's going to be right on. So I'm going to be edified rather than always being suspicious. When, when you said Missouri Synod a minute ago, did you mean ELS? No, I no, I listened to a number of Missouri Synod, conservative Missouri Synod guys. Uh, I wouldn't listen to a lot, all Missouri Synod guys, but there are yeah. a number of really good Missouri Synod podcasts that if you listen to them, like I do, those conservative Missouri Synod guys are, are right on with us in my estimation. Now, I'm not going to worship with them or commune with them because of this verse. Sure. But because I I listen very closely to them, I go, 
those guys are right on with the teachings. And But unfortunately, because they're in a church body that's not in fellowship with us, we're separated. We yeah. have, hey, we can't have uh, spiritual activity together. Right. Uh, I, I just wanted to give a little plug out to our, uh, who's in our fellowship, the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Yep. So uh, well, and that's I, good. I, hear, I hear they have a great hymnal. Right. And, and that's good too, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, because one of... One of our college students that's going down to Florida, you know, I looked it up this week and yep, there's two ELS churches right there in the college town that she's going to. And they're in fellowship with us. Go there. Uh, We can't end this chapter without hearing those uh, amazing words that uh, God promised Adam and Eve that the Redeemer would crush the serpent's head. Uh, and, And here in verse 20, God uh, gives us this great undeserved honor of, of the promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Um, that's I, always a neat thing for, for me to think about. Uh, hopefully you find encouragement from it too. Yeah, and the last thing I was going to talk about, because I always like talking about mission work, is you know this letter was written to prepare the churches in Rome to help Paul on his way to Spain. And... Uh, it's all about unity of doctrine and then unity of practice. And how does unity of doctrine and practice uh, foster mission work? Because only when a church is concerned about the Lord's teachings will it then spread those teachings to others. We are living in a uh, culture right now where the attitude, even among Christians, is I'm okay, you're okay. And then we get that way about doctrines and teachings and then we have a sluggish missionary spirit. But the history of really mission-minded churches are those who love people and love God's word, and so they're going to show that love for people by giving them God's word. That's the book of Romans, and I hope that's all of us too. The book of Romans uh, in the series that we're following is, comes right before the prophet Habakkuk. So we're going to jump now to the Old Testament. And I do see a kind of a neat overlap in that sequence because the whole uh, book of Romans is uh, sort of based on the statement that Paul makes in chapter one, uh, the righteous will live by faith. And uh, that is a quote taken from the prophet Habakkuk. Um, there's a, a really interesting dialogue that goes out through the whole book of Habakkuk, a back and forth uh, questioning and answering between the prophet and God. Um, But uh, I wondered if you had any introductory remarks you wanted to share. Yeah, just a little bit on the history of Habakkuk. So it's written probably 650 to 630 B.C., One of the interesting things with it is the nation of Babylon is mentioned here. But for you listening to understand, Babylon is not a world power now. They are still under the rule of Assyria. So God is predicting Babylon overtaking Assyria. Then God's going to use wicked Babylon to overcome wicked Judah. And it would would kind of be like, in the 1600s, uh, 1500s, 1600s, somewhere in there, if if God would inspire a, a preacher in England to stand up and say uh, that uh, 
the colonies across the Atlantic Ocean are going to become a superpower of the whole world. Uh, you'd be like, no, they're just a bunch of British colonies. They're a little spinoff of the world superpower. That's really what uh, Assyria and Babylon are kind of like in this in this time frame. Yeah, and then one last thing for introduction, you kind of alluded to it is Habakkuk is only three short chapters, but there's a striking contrast. In the first two chapters, the prophet complains and he questions God's judgment and then God replies. But then the last chapter is a beautiful psalm of praise and acceptance that Habakkuk is praising God and accepting of God's goodness even in bad times. And let's just step back and take a look at that because I think, it, you know, you can get tangled up and confused by a, a lot of the ver, ver, uh, individual verses. But this is an amazing thing that God inspired, uh, included in his inspired word, um, a guy who was kind of complaining to him and, and scolding scolding him and, asked, and questioning him. And, and then God entertains the questions. He actually says, okay, let's have a discussion about this. Let's have a dialogue. So the way I kind of uh, broke it down is uh, if you want to think of it uh, as verses one through four, uh, that's the part where Habakkuk is basically saying, God, why don't you do something about all of the violence and injustice that I see all around us in our society? Um, and that's, that's a great question still today. Right. And the question is, how long, Lord, must I cry for help? But you don't listen. Uh, he's asking God, are you deaf? Are you powerless? Or are you both? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and That's kind of a gutsy thing to say. To right. God. Right. And thinking about our culture today, uh, it seems like our government right now is becoming more oppressive and communist. We see our corporations becoming more woke. Our social media cancels any kind of critical thinking about masks or vaccines or trans people or whatever. Uh, even my beloved Muppets are under siege. I saw that. Did you see that? Yes. That was my favorite. Yeah. I am so disappointed. I grew up loving the Muppets, you know, the Muppet show and the Muppet movies, uh, for me, it was the Muppet Babies. Oh, all right. So this is what happened with the Muppet Babies. So recently, the character of Gonzo, who was created as a male in 1976, is now remade for the Muppet Babies, and he appears in a sketch about Cinderella, uh, but he comes out as Gonzarella, where he is wearing a dress and, well, as blatant pandering to the LGBTQ crowd, and we need to understand that this is a show that is targeting children ages three to eight. And so we might be crying out as Christians, Lord, are you deaf? Uh, don't, are you blind? Don't you hear about this? Don't you see this? Why don't you stop it? Or are you powerless? So in verses one through four, Habakkuk asks that, God, why, why aren't you doing something about all of the injustice in the world and the violence? And then in verses 5 through 11, God says, okay, look at what I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing something with the Babylonians. If you want someone to punish the evildoers, I'm, re I'm getting the Babylonians ready to punish the evildoers. And then in verses 
12 through the first verse of chapter 2, Habakkuk more or less responds by saying, God, what are you talking about? You're holy, uh, and the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are a bunch of idol-worshiping perverts. Uh, why would you associate yourself or, or make use of uh, something evil like uh, Babylon? And, and, then in, and then in the first verse of chapter 2, uh, he, uh, Habakkuk is saying, all right, now I'm, I know I've kind of uh, poked the bear a lot. I've, I've goaded God, and I'm just going to stand back and stay at my post and, and watch and see what God responds to my complaint. Yeah, and we can be like Habakkuk, that it seems like there is evil and injustice that's running wild in our times. So what do we need to remember? When it seems as if God is being indifferent or inactive, well, the Lord is the Lord, and he's going to act in his own mysterious ways in his own times. Uh, we just need to trust in the Lord's words here that he gives to Habakkuk and wait and believe. Someday we're going to see his righteousness and wisdom in his actions. And there I was thinking about how, uh, you know, we just mentioned with Gonzo and Gonzarella, and we see it where so many of our young people are confused about their sexuality. It's it's running rampant among our young people. And yet, I was able to spend this last week with our young people. I am waiting just after this podcast to go and spend some time with adults for the first time this week, because uh, we had you know 30 campers with uh, five through 13-year-olds, and then we had all the teens, which was fantastic. But after the soccer camp was over, then I spent every afternoon and evening doing youth activities with the kids, too. It was basically me chaperoning 15 to 20 kids. Uh, but what a pleasure to be with these kids. They really love each other. They're hugging each other. Uh, they, they're a pleasure to be with each other and as their pastor to be around. And that gives me hope. I see the Lord working in them. Where, it's, where I see the devil working in so many of our other young people. And that's my encouragement, where I see the Lord working in his mysterious ways. So the second half of chapter one is basically Habakkuk saying, no, 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 wait a minute, God. I, the, the cure that you are offering it sounds worse than the disease. Uh, are, are you sure you can't uh, uh, maybe rethink this? And then in chapter two, verse two, it says, the Lord answered me. He said, record the vision and write it plainly on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Uh, now, there are a lot of uh, options for what that verse means. And uh, I, I think it's easiest to handle it by saying the running reader, that uh, there's a reader that does some running. Now, what's the order in which he does the running? Um, it could be that God told the prophet, write this so plainly and clearly that you can just skim it. You, you, can, you can run with your eyes over it. Um, another option is that uh, we, we should be thinking of a billboard, like a tablet or, or placard that's so big and written in such big letters that even people who are running fast past it will be able to read it. Um, this translation sounds like it went with the third option uh, that write these words of mine 
uh, on a tablet so and make them so easy to remember that a runner can memorize the message and then take off to go tell it to somebody else. Um, that's kind of the, it sounds like the, the option that uh, uh, this translation went with. Um, but what is the, what is the message? Um, it is, uh, verse three talks about how God is going to fulfill his words. He, the vision will happen. It'll, the appointed time will come about, uh, sooner or later, just wait for it. Even if the disease, the cure seems worse than the disease, just wait for the fulfillment. And then, uh, verse four talks about the Babylonians. Yeah. God says, Habakkuk, you're right. The Babylonians are bad. Look, the Babylonian soldier, his soul is puffed up and is not righteous within him. But here's Paul's great quote from the book of Romans. The righteous one will live by his faith. And I just want to talk real quickly too with uh, the first verse of uh, of chapter two that Habakkuk is complaining to the Lord and then he says but I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up and watch uh, and I think that's a good good way for all of us Christians and and this the good strong Christians I know that's what they do they can complain to the Lord and about the Lord and there's plenty of Psalms that do that mm-hmm. and it's okay for us to complain to the Lord uh, even complain to the Lord about the Lord. Mm-hmm. But then you eventually just have to, what I tell my girls all the time when they complain is suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> okay. We need to be buttercups and we need to suck it up and shut up and then just open our eyes and trust what the Lord is doing. And what we need to do is uh, we question the present. We have no idea about the future but what we need to do is look at the past. And we're going to look mm. at that in chapter three uh, is, but when we look at the past and we see how God has been faithful, that trust, that gives us the trust he's going to be faithful. Uh, uh, you may run into uh, people, and this happens in other passages of both the Old and the New Testament, that uh, in verse four, the word for faith could also be translated as faithfulness. Uh, now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap. Those are two similar concepts. But, uh, Mike, would you tell me, uh, is it okay if I call you Mike? That's fine. <laughs> uh, would you tell me, uh, what could be a problem if, if there's a confusion about saying f- faithfulness instead of faith for a verse like this? The, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Do you see where that could go uh, astray a little bit. I think most people would see faithfulness as the same as obedience. Yeah, yeah. It would again. It would bring the focus not on what you believe about God. It would be more you know, I'm, about. I'm noticing something here. Is I didn't prepare all my questions for you, and you get all your questions for me this episode. I got to do better for the you, next. You, I, I am. I am rusty at this. Did, well, you just did a great job. I, well, I know, but but. I feel like I'm in the hot seat all the time. I have to, I have to be better should, for the next one. You should get one. some more questions for me. I, I do. All right. I'll start writing um, some down. Uh, the faithfulness is like, well, how, how good of a Christian are you? How faithful of a Christian are you? And it puts all the emphasis on your own good deeds. Um, and uh, Paul tells us in, in Romans that the, the correct understanding of this verse is not so much how reliable are you as a believer, uh, because I'm very unreliable. Uh, the point here is the righteous will live eternally 
not because of how faithful you were, but because of what you believed about Christ and his redemption. And I loved verse 14. So the earth we filled will be as filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. Uh, you know, as Habakkuk saw Babylon taking over uh, Judah, Judah was wicked. And so wicked Babylon was going to take over them. And we see, again, our culture uh, here in America going further and further away from the Lord. What we need to do as Christians is uh, just trust the Lord uh, that he is going to do what he needs to do. Uh, there may be times that he takes the word of the Lord out of a nation. We see that throughout the history of the world, that every nation in the history of the world has had God's word, but they rejected it. But God with his prophets will not, uh, you know, he had them shake the dust off of their feet and then take that gospel somewhere else. And I pray that doesn't happen in our culture uh, here in America. But if it does, well, then God's going to take that word elsewhere and uh, all of the earth will be filled up with the knowledge of the glory of God. You, there is not a continent on this globe where you can't find a cross. A cross the, the, yeah, that this, this prophecy has come true. Um, the, the interesting thing about all of the verses after uh, verse four to the end of the chapter is that uh, God is talking about how he, he agrees with Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you're right. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans are uh, a rotten people. But what was interesting as I was reading it is he talks in such generalities. He doesn't say the Babylonians did this and the Babylonians are like that. Um, he, he kind of says they or he or, you know, just very vague terminology that y you start to realize, hey, wait a minute. All those things that the Babylonians are doing wrong and they're, they're really sinful, th those are also things that people in our culture and society do wrong and are sinful. Uh, and you could say that not just about modern America, but about ancient Israel, about uh, any nation on earth. Um, and I think a good example of that is in verse 15. Uh, it talks about uh, getting your uh, neighbor drunk so that you can look at their nakedness. And uh, I was thinking, that doesn't even have to mean physical nakedness or uh, actual drunkenness. Uh, it's kind of like, could you imagine there's somebody that you're, you know how the saying goes, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, uh, imagine trying to buddy up to your enemy well enough so that you can find out where he's vulnerable or uh, how he uh, shows you uh, that uh, his his soft spot or, or some way that you can take advantage of him. That's kind of the same thing as uh, trying to get somebody drunk so you can see their nakedness. You, you want to be able to take advantage of them, and that's possible to do even without any kind of sexual sin. And the big thing that the Lord is saying as he's answering Habakkuk's second complaint is uh, God's going to use Babylon to... Uh, chastise Judah, but proud Babylon is also going to be destroyed. The last verse, but the Lord is in his temple, let the whole earth be silent before him. So the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And in light of this, all of the people just need to be silent. We need to shut up 
because God's going to do what God's going to do. And as much as the princes of this world follow the prince of this world, the devil, it, it really doesn't matter. They cannot stop the Lord. Ultimately, his will will be done. And, and the verses just before that show you uh, what every society on earth has done, which is uh, worshipped idols. Uh, and what are your idols? Uh, they are anything that you yourself have created. Uh, that's, that's what we like to worship the most is our good deeds, uh, whether it's your credit score, your resume, or your uh, list of accomplishments. Uh, that's why the chapter ends by saying, shut up, <laughs> be silent. Uh, the Lord is in his temple. Uh, chapter three, then the way that I was kind of breaking down this dialogue between Habakkuk and God is that God gave that long answer all about the Babylonians and how they are, you're right, Habakkuk, those are bad people, uh, but I'm going to take care of them too and bring justice to them. And it's kind of like chapter three is Habakkuk saying, wow, that's a good answer, God. Yeah. And uh, in chapter three, Habakkuk remembers the great things that God had done in the past. And he wants the Lord to duplicate these things in the present. And that's what I mentioned before. That's the best way to handle difficult times in the present or the future. Look back at the evidence of God's acts of mercy in your past and then ask him to duplicate them again. Uh, this whole chapter is structured a lot like one of the Psalms from the book of Psalms. Uh, there's that musical term, Shigia Noth, uh, in verse 1. And then uh, we have, it, maybe your Bible uses the word Selah, but a couple of the verses throughout, there are three of them really, that uh, have this interlude. Um, and the way that I always tell people, it, actually in our Thirsty podcast, we have never done a psalm, have we? We have not done psalms. So uh, the, the way that I always tell people to handle those interludes is, you know, if you imagine a musical spiel going on during that interlude, it's giving you a chance to go back and think about what was just said. So reread the verse before it, the interlude, and then really out loud read the verse that follows the interlude, because that's how the ancient Israelites would be hearing it after the music got done doing the interlude, uh, the very next words would really make a strong impact. See, I thought the interlude was the time like we just did at soccer camp where we were singing where uh, there were no words. So the kids just did whatever kind of goofy dance that uh, your your wife and our and Miss Pushkoff and Andre and our coaches were encouraging them to do. I thought that was the interlude. So should we get some liturgical dancing at our church? No. No, we can do it at camp, but not in church. So I, I got another question for you. you All right, fantastic. I can't wait. Verse 13 um, says, you march out to save your people to deliver your anointed one. And uh, my question was, did the Christ need saving? Because that's kind of what it's saying there. Deliver your anointed one. Um, that. That, that's talking about the Christ, isn't it? I'm going to go with your answer first <laughs> so I can look at what I wrote down. It's, well, obviously in his deity, Jesus did not need uh, saving. God is all powerful. Um, but as a, as a true man, and, and when you think of the seed 
that was carried through the Jewish people that gave birth to the Christ, uh, that that did need plenty of saving. Um, and finally, this is the way that uh, the Palm Sunday text talks about, uh, I think that's Zechariah, right? The um, uh, seed, daughter of Zion, your, your king comes to you, righteous, righteous and, and ha- having... Having salvation. Having salvation. That's actually, it. that's what happened to Jesus. We, we can say he rose from the dead, but we can also say he was raised from the dead. Uh, as a true human, he was rescued from death. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the mysteries of, of uh, our triune God. Like you said, you know, we can say that, uh, Jesus rose from the dead, but we can say God raised Jesus from the dead. You can say here that uh, you, Lord, because this is a back speaking, you march out to save your people, to deliver your anointed one. Uh, you strike the head of the wicked nation and lay him out. And yet we also say rightly, that's Jesus' work of laying out the uh, the leader of the land of wickedness, which is Satan. Now, he crushed uh, Jesus crushed Satan by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And I, uh, all right, so I'll ask you a question. What does it mean, Jeremy? <laughs> uh, you strike the head of the wicked nation to lay him out naked from his buttocks to his neck. Verse uh, 14. Well, I, 13. It, uh, the, the, the footnote here kind of lets me bail myself out. I, that's what I was going to use too as a footnote. It's uh, yeah, it's it's either it, well, it, we need to be picturing the the horrors of war here. Except this time, the good guys. It's it's your team that is defeating the other uh, opponent, the the other opponent on the battlefield, and uh, it's it's an ugly business war warfare. And uh, but but here, as you pointed out, we need to be thinking of Satan. And isn't this a wonderful thing that our old enemy who ruined God's creation and cast us all into sin, God is going to take him and uh, either it means he's going to slice him from his uh, loins up to his chin or, or he's going to expose him uh, from, yeah, so you can, you can see his, uh, all of his shame exposed to the world. Uh, and and every and we all get to point and laugh at him. Yeah, you're right. And I like the the note here, like you said, uh, splitting him open from the lower body to the neck. You know, it means it can mean eviscerating him. And there, I think of one of my favorite shows I watch is Forged in Fire. And what they do is after they make their their master sword or axe and so forth, then one of the guys, the judges, takes them and it's usually a gelatin dummy with a skull and so forth, but then, you know, there's blood in, you know, fake blood inside and he's <laughs> stabbing him and he's, uh, trying to cut him in half, chopping off the head and eviscerating him from top to bottom. It's kind of gruesome. Now it's fake blood and so forth. But the idea, like you said, this is what Jesus does to Satan. That's the key. That one verse is so important, uh, in all of this is God uses, uh, bloody imagery to win a very bloody battle. Uh, verse 16 is kind of that, um, okay, I just found out how I'm going to die. Like, like it, it's kind of a gracious thing of God that he doesn't tell us or doesn't reveal to us how we're going to die. 
uh, and and not necessarily how Habakkuk as an individual is going to die, but he he did find he just found out something about his people's future, and that's that's a very sad or scary or unsettling thing. Uh, and so he said when he hears about in verse sixteen when he hears about how the Babylonians are going to come and attack them. Uh, to bring justice back to the land. He says, my stomach churns, the sound makes my lips quiver, my bones decay, and my knees tremble as I wait for the day of disaster to come upon the people who attack us. So that could mean the, the, the final outcome of God bringing justice also to the Babylonians, uh, but it could also mean the, the fact that, oh, now I, I was questioning God, and now he's told me this is some of the uh, tragedy that's going to befall your people, and, and uh, that, that makes me a little more than nervous. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so then that's a, a good place to end, because verses 17 through 19 uh, show you uh, even if, if we would be overtaken and have to see the horrors of war like the Babylonians brought to the ancient Judea, um, verses 17 through 19 are uh, what I like to call the anti-prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That we praise the Lord even in hard times. And he goes on that the fig tree may have no buds, the vines may have no grapes, the field have no food, there is no cattle in the barns, but... But I will delight in the Lord and rejoice in the God who saves me. The Lord is my strength and so forth. So that's the key. Even in the hard times that you and I are going through, just like Habakkuk, we praise the Lord. You can maybe even see a hint of resurrection there because all of these physical things, uh, you don't have any food, you don't have any nourishment, and uh, yet uh, God says that he will make your strength uh, like a deer uh, that you'll leap along the high hills. Uh, how are you going to do that without physical nourishment? Well, it it must mean that uh, we have a Lord who has conquered death and is going to revive our, our dead bodies one day. So uh, we're going to be playing some catch up because each of us have been on vacation for a basically July, and that's pretty much me. Uh, so we're a few weeks behind. Uh, my wife and a few other loyal listeners have reminded me constantly that we're behind. So we're going to be catching up as soon as we can. But in the next episode, we're going to be looking at the four chapters of Paul's letter to the Christians in the city of Philippi. And then we'll spend three short chapters with the prophet Zephaniah. So this is Pastor Zarling with Dr. Doom. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.